KYW Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. The connection that spans so many years later, while still knowing guys that played at Ursinus in the 60s and 70s, like, I love that. I love the fact that it's Ursinus basketball. Long before me and long after me, I know you've had some some coaches come through these podcasts, but it's a miracle they pay us because we'd all do it for free. And our guest this week, Ursinus College men's basketball coach, Kevin Small. Coach, thanks for stopping by. Matt, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to chatting. 2019-2020 will be your 20th season in Collegeville. Does that seem possible? No, and you've been talking to me for a lot of that, so you're just as old. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been an amazing journey. Really love it out there, and obviously I'm really fortunate to be uh, 19 years in as a head coach there. When you take the job, did you think it was a place, maybe not you're going to spend the next 20 years, but did you look at it as like, this is a job that I'm probably going to have for a while? I did, uh, actually. Um, so I'm f- fortunate to have kind of grown up a Philly guy and went, St. Joe Prep, St. Joe guy, and uh, have coached ever since I was out of school. Um, so I just finished my 28th year in the same conference because I was at Haverford prior to going to Orsinus as an assistant and then to Swarthmore as an assistant and then back to Orsinus as our head coach. And so I knew our league really well. Um, I'm a little bit of a homebody. Uh, and, uh, you know, my mom and dad have 28 grandkids, and I wanted my kids to grow up around their cousins and know their grandparents. So I knew that I wanted to be reasonably local. And Orsinus is a really, really special place. And it, it, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, we had a former board chair who used to talk about our true north and there was a sense of real strong identity or people at Ursinus know what Ursinus is and it gets in your blood and I'm really lucky to be uh to have a home there was coaching growing up always something that you thought was going to be on the table how did you start down the path of coaching in general so the answer to that is no, uh, not at all. And in fact, I'm a little later to basketball. I don't even know that you know this, but um, I was a runner uh, when I was younger. I have an older sister, Maria, who was an All-American runner at Georgetown and very accomplished. And uh, her Georgetown team won a national championship while she was there. And my dream was to be my older sister, Maria. And so I was a runner. Did Problem was I wasn't anywhere near as good as Mario. So, uh, and as I went away to college, I started playing basketball and played basketball at Juniata College for two years, and was a biochemist, chemistry kind of science geek. And um, transferred to St. Joe's because I'd really gotten the bug. I was friendly with some of the guys on the team. Tried out. Um, I can still remember though, like it was yesterday. It was Coach Martelli that actually cut me and. Uh, because Coach Griffin was the head coach at the time, and they had this really cool tradition. It was an open trial. There were tons of guys there, but by day two, there was like five of us, and I think day three, there was, I think there was two or three of us, and Brett McKay was the guy they opted to take, and Brett was, at the time, I'm not sure I would have admitted this, but way better basketball player than I was. I was a solid Division three kid, um, but I was devastated to not be playing basketball, and so I started working... Um, you know, part-time, maybe 20 hours a week um, in a neurobiochemistry lab. Uh, And it probably was why I ended up in coaching because I missed, one, I started a little later, fell in love with the sport a little later, 
And when I fell in love, I fell hard. <laughs> and then to have it taken away, uh, I think as I missed it so bad, I started working, uh, coach, uh, so growing up in Philly, obviously I'm really lucky. And, uh, and for any, uh, coach O'Hanlon, who's the coach at Lafayette now was an assistant at Penn. And those guys helped me get a job along with coach Martelli, who I'd stayed in touch with, um, at Haverford college. And I, I made a thousand dollars and I couldn't have been happier. When I graduated from St. Joe's, I started working full time and deferred a PhD program in, in biochemistry. And I had two really cool faculty members that were unbelievable, um, Pat Levitt and uh, Tim Cunningham. And if you couldn't, if I couldn't get excited about the work we were doing with two world-renowned, you know, biochemists, uh, it probably wasn't the profession for me. And I remember looking at my, you know, trying to figure out what time it was and looking for a watch and like, can I leave to go to practice at Haverford? (laughs) So about a year and a half, two years into that, I just decided I'm going to try to do this full time. And that's what I did. And I, you know, worked all kinds of odd jobs, but long answer to a short question. No, I had no idea I'd be a coach. Um, But that first year at Haverford, something clicked. Haverford's also a pretty cool place. Um, But I think for me, the idea of being around kids, being an educator, I'm, I'm, Mom and dad are both educators. My mom was a school nurse at Rosemont College. My dad's taught English at the Academy of Notre Dame for a long, long time. And so I'm a, I'm around it my whole life. And my wife, I'm married to an English teacher uh, at Shipley School. And so for me, it, became, it was something that instead of going into science and potentially teaching, I would teach. I would just teach doing basketball, right? And uh, I don't know that I was even convinced after my first stop at Haverford that I would keep coaching. I just loved it and so kept doing it. I actually did go back and get a graduate degree and in, in, in kind of certification of being a principal um, from St. Joe's. And it, that was certainly not the best use of all the money for that master <laughs> since all I've done for 28 years is coach college basketball. Um, I have told you this in the past, though. I'm, don't tell anybody. I know you've had some, some coaches come through these podcasts, but it, it's a miracle they pay us because we'd all do it for free. When did you, you – obviously the love was there. How long into the coaching did it take till you realized you were pretty good at it? Oh, I don't know. I'm still trying to sort that out. I mean, and that's not humility. I know there's, I look at all the time things I should have done differently or better. And I know that's part of being a coach, you know, um, that's in our DNA too. So, uh, so I don't know about answering that, but I do know when did I start sorting out? I will do this even if it's really hard. Um, because coaching is not for everybody. I, I love it, but it's also, you know, I married a woman who's a saint because she signed on for me not being around very much for five, six months of the year. Um, and we're not going to, she's a teacher, she's off during the summer. Well, we're not going to see much of me in July during the life periods. And so uh, for me, I think that started that journey to knowing this is kind of what I wanted to do was when I was in grad school at St. Joe's and thinking about maybe being a dean of students, you know, um, at an independent school. And I began to snoop opportunities and I interviewed at a bunch of places, cool places, like just different, you know, um, I had a headhunter who had asked, you know, signed me up and I flew out to Roland Hall, St. Mark's in Salt Lake City. And it's the only non-Mormon, because <laughs> their public schools are all Mormon kids. Right. Uh, it was an independent school uh, in there. 
And I can remember going through a journey and visiting places like that and thinking, yeah, it'd be cool to be the AD and coach basketball, but then I'd also have to be the AD. <laughs> and what I really just want to do is work with kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a handful of friends, there were two, two friends of mine um, and myself started a small nonprofit. At the time, it was called Sports Challenge. It's now called Thrive. And we began to work with kind of leadership skills for high school athletes. And when I was doing that, and I was kind of our admissions guy, I was the face guy, I did a lot of school visits up and down the East Coast uh, here. And, uh, you know, we had this selective admission, so they had to apply to get to the summer program. And we were at, initially at Babson College up in Wellesley, and then we were at Hotchkiss School and then St. Andrews, and now it's at actually at Hereford College. And I remember the kind of blood, sweat, and tears to do that because starting a, you know, a small business like that. Right. Um, uh, and it never occurred to me that I wouldn't be coaching while doing that. And I think it was about that point where I was like, I'm, I'm going to be in this for the long haul. Like, this is what I really want to do. Uh, and that said, there's an awful lot of guys way more talented than me that don't end up being a head coach. I think luck prevailed a little bit, uh, fortune, whatever. But I was pretty purposeful about my stops. I can still remember interviewing at some uh, having opportunities to jump on staffs in the Patriot League, you know, as a 25, 26-year-old, and spending a day, you know, um, at Lehigh and saying, you know what, as amazing as this place is and it's kind of cool, the Patriot League was just beginning to go to scholarships. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't think I'm a Division One guy. And so my stops were much more designed to be purposeful about what fit best for me. And a lot of that's driven by just like, I like working with kids and at our sinus, they essentially let me mentor young men. And obviously I'm really a competitive SOB, as you know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so for me, I, I want to win and we're in a tradition at our sinus where our athletic programs over the years have been pretty strong. And so I'm fortunate to be in a setting that allows me to be really competitive, but I also don't lose sight on the fact that I'm afforded the opportunity to help kids kind of grow up and just be better men. And so really that's the drive. That's why I stay in it is to help these kids along. And, but I'm a little bit more of an old school standard bearer. So in an age where it's harder and harder for coaches to draw a line, I still have an opportunity to do that at our sinus and say, Nope, this is, we have really high expectations and I'm going to help you along, you know, and at the same time teach you this great game. And, you know, hopefully we're going to win a lot. When you were, as you mentioned, the assistant stops and it was you know, Haverford or Sinus SWAT. When you're at or Sinus as an assistant, did you look at it as a place like, boy, if head coaching is going to be for me, wouldn't it be great to be at a place like this? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, so, but I, I tasted a, a bunch of different settings, you know, having been around the St. Joe team when I was at St. Joe's and friends with those guys, I, I at least knew about that setting and having had a division three setting that I played at, um, at Juniata. And then, you know, the, the idea of Haverford and Swarthmore are from afar, very similar, but they're actually not. They're, they're decidedly different campus cultures and then Ursinus. And I think of all of those, I think I recognized that Ursinus gave me a chance to work with a wider swath of the U S demographic and that fit me. Um, and so for me, I did, I had some sense when I left, um, that that was a place that was really cool. I, 
I left, I also had a chance to work with a guy who's been amazing to me, uh, a really good mentor, uh, Lee Wimberly, who was the head coach at Swarthmore, who's obviously since retired, long retired. But, um, you know, coach was a particularly strong figure in my career because he not only was he a great tactical guy, but he understood how to create something that's bigger than the, the little individual pieces uh, from a scheme standpoint. And so I, I'd always had the kind of mentorship uh, of like how to be an educator, whether that was my dad or friends, different mentors I had in grad school at St. Joe's. But the idea of schematically creating culture, and that was the gift that Lee, beyond all the other things that he taught me, the idea that like a uh, share the ball offense actually can also impact your team's culture. And most people don't think of it that way. Like you're going to run an offense based on whatever players you have, right? But in college, you get to recruit to a certain scheme. And for me, I learned that I really wanted to coach a certain style. And it hadn't occurred to me until I'd worked for Coach Wimberly that there was a style that fit me best. So when you first take over at Ursinus, what was the transition like going from an assistant to taking over your own program? Was it overwhelming at first? Yeah. I, I was still um I was still running this nonprofit. So I was still doing essentially two jobs. You know, I was recently married. Um, fortunately we didn't have any kids at the time because that would have been really tough. Um, but yeah, it was hard. It was overwhelming. You make a lot of mistakes. Um, I know that I look back and I'm a really different coach than I was in 2000 when I became our head coach. And a lot of that is just, I'm far, far less of a cocky son of a gun. Like I I think I had a sense that like, you're going to do it my way and that's just the way it is. And I'm still really opinionated about, the right style of play or honor the game, you know, but I think for me that those early years, what you don't know when you're an assistant is the overwhelming responsibility that every decision taxes you. You know, there's no decision you make that you don't pause and say like, okay, is this right? And as an assistant, you're quick to offer your two cents, you know, but there's no liability. You know, you're, you it's it just fundamentally different. Um, and I think those first two, three years, now we were really fortunate because a team that hadn't really ever been in the playoffs in a relatively young league, the Centennial at the time, but we'd never been a playoff team. To, to make the playoffs that first year at least gave a little bit of like oomph to the first staff that we had. And I had an incredible, talented assistant coaching staff. So uh, they more than made up for the mistakes the head coach made. How long did it take? You mentioned the success right there. But how how long into head coaching till you felt like, not that you can do it, like, all right, you, you kind of found your pace as, as a head coach. How many seasons, or was it that first season as it went on, things maybe kind of start to slow down, stuff like that? Well, I hope in my 20th year, Matt, I'll, I'll finally <laughs> get it right. Um, I don't know. That, that's a tough one to answer because I do think that I've made my share of mistakes. And you and I have talked because you've seen us at some really highs, you know, some of the teams that you've helped cover have been really special from a wins-loss standpoint, but some of the best jobs we've done coaching have been on teams that haven't won a ton of games. Um, 
whether that's because they were years where we set different expectations and made some significant changes because guys weren't meeting those expectations or whether those were injuries or, you know, there's so many things that can go wrong um, that affect a win-loss column. I think for me, I'm a, you know, this isn't, uh, you also know that I'm a pretty confident guy, so this isn't false, but uh, a statement, but I think that I still have a long way to go. And I don't know that I've figured everything out yet, or I probably wouldn't keep coaching. You know, for me, the joy is in trying to figure out how to do it better. And uh, I know that those first overwhelming, the feeling of being just singularly overwhelmed probably dissipated because after our, two, our my third season, because we un, we were undefeated in league play. We were a one seed in the NCAA tournament. We got a first round bye, like the success that the team, like the players had took a little bit off of my plate. Like, okay, now maybe recruits will pay attention. You know, like I never viewed it as like the staff winning 21 games. It was Steve Erfel, Dan Luciano, Dennis Stanton, Mike McGarvey, like the the, the guys, but in their quality of play, it did take a little bit of the burden off of like, yep, what we're doing is working. And I'm, I'm talking more about like culture building, types of kids that we're going to interact with from a recruiting standpoint, um, and the the whole style that we had. Because honestly, what we did when we got there was really different than what the models I had had in front of me. We we still talk today with families when they come visit, and I'm like, yeah, we don't really recruit, so it's going to be a little different here, and that's not for everybody. And so there's a lot of kids that really need attention. Right. And I know that's not going to work because I'm not really going to be that way when you get here. So we don't, we try to find fit, you know, and I knew that there was a little risk to that approach because 99% of division three is recruiting to attrition. They're just going to bring as many talented kids that they can get to come. And I understand why they do that. You know, kids get hurt. Kids aren't as good as you thought they were. Kids fall in love, whatever those reasons are. School's too hard. Um, School's too expensive today. Right. That approach, however, builds in a triangle. If, if you're going to bring in six to ten freshmen every year, well, you're not going to have ten seniors. Right. And so there was – it bothered me that, that most programs recruit that way. And I'm no saint, but like, I'm like, well, you know that you, you, you'll never have all those kids through. And so we've tried to be a little bit more honorable about a process, but it, it's not without a lot of roulette because – if you hold out for a certain ca- a candidate and they don't come, well, you've kind of, or they come and they're not as good. Right. So we're trying to create a, re- a climate of urgent competition and practice, but we're also going to be bound by, we're not going to over-recruit positions. So whatever that number is, 15 kids, my AD would like to see us at 15, maybe 16. I haggle with her and it's like 14 or 15. Um, uh, this past year, we were at 12. You know, uh, yeah. So for us, I think that idea has helped because it creates a very different identity and and feel and culture. I know it's a little bit hackneyed to talk about culture, but like there's something really unique to our sinus basketball. And part of that's because our sinus is so unique. It's a really special place. So we've kind of tied into that and then connected to alumni who are very invested in our basketball family. Um, but that, then applies to how we're going to like, – who would we offer opportunity to be part of this really special group? 
And that means a lot of our homework is done long before a candidate comes to campus because we want to make sure, like we've never done a mailing. Well, that that's the nature of coaching, especially in Division Two and Division Three. It's just mass marketing, right? Right. Um, we've never done that in 19 years because we didn't want somebody getting a an email or a letter or even a text. Now, like you can send out automated text messages. Like they don't know. They think it's particular to just them, you know. Uh, there's a level of sophistication that most high school kids aren't aware that they think they're the man when they get this email. But 5,000 kids who were at these 15 recruiting events all got the same. Right. We've never done that because I didn't want a kid who was kind of a prima donna saying, yeah, I'm getting recruited by our scientists. <laughs> so, so we said, well, we're going to have, we're going to be a little bit more careful about the kids we would offer an opportunity. And so we follow a little bit more like a scholarship model. Like we're going to make an offer and then we get, we we'll figure out a timeline, a couple days, a week, Hey, you got to let us know if you're going to take that offer, um, because if we're not going to, you're not going to say yes, and we're going to go to our our next one down. Now, I, you know, it's a little bit like uh, I went to all Catholic schools, so like a little like Catholic roulette, you know, because we we kind of load in that we know the kid we're offering, and all likelihood is going to accept. Right. <laughs> so so uh, anyway, so for us, uh, the, the the whole journey has been a little different, but I'd say that third year validated at least some of the approach and the the kids were such a special group, then some of the pressure to make sure that the risk we were taking, recruiting so fundamentally differently, it it was going to work. You mentioned success, and you've had a lot of it. uh, Your most successful season, 2007-2008, you end up going to the NCAA Division III Final Four, um, and you're led by a kid, Nick Shattuck, who the numbers – just off the charts and talk to me going, take me to September of 2007 as you're going into that season. Expectations are high. This is, you know, but did you think we've got something extraordinary here this year? You know, it probably was a little bit earlier than that. Uh, The answer is no. Um, Every, every team, Look, we've been lucky because we've had a lot of self-sustaining, you know, uh, philosophies over the years, and uh, this idea that long before I got to Ursinus, right, there were some really amazing men that played basketball at Ursinus, and I know that I'm just a shepherd of my little tenure. And long after I'm gone, there's going to be other coaches that are going to shepherd Ursinus basketball forward. But every year I've been at Ursinus has felt different, and so if you bring a little bit of an approach of, yep. Now this team, okay. And I can remember learning that. The, 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 I, I was, uh, once I decided I was going to be a coach, I, I became kind of voracious about like learning and, and, and doing it. And I can remember listening to Bobby Knight at a, at a five-star outdoor basketball camp up in Honesdale and him talking a little bit with the staff and about his teams at Indiana at the time. And it was a long time ago, obviously, but he, he was – insisting that they were talking about incoming players. And he's like, well, they're not here yet. You know, and he was just talking about this is what we are, right? And I think for me that 2007-8 team, yes, we knew that there were some talented players. But in September, that, that, that I was still thinking a little bit about there was a lot of changes, so that we talked a moment ago about that first championship team in 2002-2003. Well, 2004, we had a kid, Dennis Stanton, lead the nation, Division One, Two, and Three in scoring, and that was that footprint of that year. 2005, we were kind of rocky, not playing very well, 500 team that suddenly 
played outstanding basketball for the last six, seven weeks of the season and upset you know a top 10 ranked FNM team in Lancaster for a championship. Well, we knew the returning, everybody was in the rotation, rotation coming back, including a kid freshman by the name of Nick Shattuck who makes a key three in that game. That 2016 was a top 10 ranked science basketball team for a long time. So we knew that was going to be real. And sure enough, we beat Hopkins in a great, you know, centennial finals and um, very typical fashion. We give up 82 points to Hopkins and put up a hundred because we can't <laughs> guard anybody, but we score, right? So very typical or science. And, and so the 2007 team was led by a pair of senior forwards who had been on a bunch of those really good teams. And we got upset in the centennial playoffs in a semifinal game, really good record, good team, talented team. Um, and on that team, we saw the rise of a particular player that wasn't just good anymore. You know, he, he was turning into something different and he was player of the year as a junior um, and an All-American as a junior. And that was a kid, Nick Shattuck. Um, and then Nick, uh, Nick was a really quiet kid, you know, when it came to basketball, but he was a guy who we would have to kind of push and pull about doing the stuff that wasn't actually playing, you know, strength training, studying more, you know, all the, all the things that go into being a college athlete and balancing nutrition, you know, uh, sleep habits, stop playing video games. But when it came to basketball, he could easily lose himself in six, eight hours of basketball a day. Um, he just loved playing and part of it was competing. Uh, we've been really fortunate to have a lot of talented players uh, and Nick stands on a very short list of kids that had a capacity to meet the moment differently. So they're really competitive, they're really talented, but they also played their best basketball when it was required. We knew that. So in September before that year, we knew we had a kid who was, I mean, nobody was singing the blues in our league in a way that maybe we were a little bit about losing Will Fury and Matt Fabian to all league forwards, one six eight, who led our league in three point shooting percentage. Uh, everyone used threes in Collegeville, all right. And then Matt Fabian, who was the leading rebounder in the conference, and just in, an incredible, gifted athlete. We were feeling the pressure to replace this really high level front court, and made some risky choices at the time because at the time basketball was really played differently than it is today uh, with the rise of five out offenses and a lot more guard play and forwards that are more kind of dribble handoff guys on the perimeter. And our league still had two true bigs. I mean, everyone played a point guard, two wings and two bigs. Mm -hmm. So for us, we had a little bit of a quandary because Nick though, six, 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 seven was a guard. When he played at LaSalle Prep, even though I can remember him defending Deshaun White, who went off to play Providence. But I was like, I love this kid. The moment I laid eyes on him, and he's like 160 pounds soaking wet, throwing an elbow into Deshaun White, trying to knock him off the block. I'm like, that kid can play for us. <laughs> um, and, uh, but he, he, you know, he's a guard. And so we ended up going to a four-guard offense. Um, at the time, we had a former player who was one of my all-time favorite captains, and a great leader, really bright kid who was in law school at Villanova by the name of Teddy Piatritz. Teddy's dad played at Ursinus, is actually a board member of Ursinus, really great family, very Ursinus family. And in Teddy, he kind of, uh, his dad's buddies with Tom Inglesby, so somehow they talk coach into letting him hang around at practice and watch. And he's watching the first version of Villanova's four guard. 
when they had a slew of injuries and Scotty Reynolds is suddenly like playing out there with all these guards and one big by necessity. Mm-hmm. And Teddy's watching that and he's like, coach, they do almost everything we do, but they're doing it with four guards because one of our bigs has always been shooting threes. He's like, you got to, you got to, I'm taking notes for you. You got to look at this. So that September, you know, and all summer, I've been having Nick over to my house, having, you know, making a mistake on the back grill and talking about, you have to actually open your mouth as a senior. You know, you're going to have to, it's not good enough that you just play hard and are urgent and talented and a great competitor. You need to, you need to start paying attention to your, your, your non-basketball stuff and your voice but we also are going to ask you to do some different things because you're going to have to go guard bigs now and you're going to have to rebound your position and we're going to put you inside a little bit more. And so we adjusted some things schematically to reflect we really only had a, a, an, old, an older big that was going to carry the load and there was a lot of risk there because he barely played. You know, the kid Michael Shema, who's a seven-footer for us, a kid from Rwanda, Africa, whose family had been displaced in the genocide and he had a long narrative. It was a really amazing story. Uh, his journey here to the States, but he played for a year at West Town, did a, a post-grad year there and ended up with us, right? And we had this proud tradition of some inter- really smart. Michael was incredibly bright. And we've had this tradition of some amazing, bright international students. In fact, just a year ago, we graduated a kid, Remy Yannico from Paris. Mm-hmm. Remember, and Remy's off to working in a lab down at Hopkins in their graduate school. So in Michael, we had a big, but it a big that barely played because – Kid Matty Fabian and Will Fury had gobbled up 35 minutes a game. Um, so that September it was wrought with at least some concern about fundamentally changing things that had been very successful for us. And would we play less experienced forwards, you know, Kid Matty Brundage, or would we go with some older guys and just move Nick over? And we made the decision because we'd added a transfer who we knew was a really, really good shooter. And I don't have a lot of transfers. I've had four in – nearly 20 years. And it's just, I think there's a journey. We like to have freshmen and then we help them become sophomores and sophomores, we help become juniors and juniors, we help become seniors. And so there's a narrative about how they grow as men, but also as basketball players from a player development standpoint. So, but Matt had decided to take a late offer coming off of a tournament down in DC called Charlie Weber. It was a big AAU event at the end of April and he got offered. Okay. Um, And he went off to JMU and Maddie was lugging around SAT scores that were far north of Kevin Smalls. So, uh, <laughs> and, and it wasn't a fit. They were telling him he couldn't take a fourth class. And you know, here's a kid who's an economic, you know, just was not difficult for him to be a very good student at Ursinus. And Ursinus is a far, is a very demanding academic environment. Uh, and so for him, he, he, he knew right away that it wasn't the right setting. And he had told us no in April. And he even called in the middle of summer and was like, you know, I, I know you don't really take transfers and I know I messed up by not saying yes, but, and we had added him because I loved him and I loved his family. And I, in fact, I just talked to his, his dad uh, about a month ago. So we've kept up with him. And it, it, in Maddie, we knew we had this elite shooter and Matt did lead the NCAA in three point shooting percentage, two of his four years with us. So we opted to go with a smaller lineup with some risk and it obviously worked out. Have to take a break here on One on One. We will have more with our Sinus men's basketball coach, Kevin Small, after this. Stick around. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. 
It's called One-on-One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. And we're back on one-on-one, continuing our conversation with our Sinus College men's basketball coach, Kevin Small. So when during that season do you start to really feel like, all right, uh, we're good, and I can see a level with this group that you don't get all the time? It's so funny we're talking about this. I barely ever think about this team, but it's pretty cool to talk about because I don't think about it very often. I know exactly the moment. Um, so we had been, <clears throat> when I got to Ursinus, um, I told you years ago, one of the guys who I really admired was Coach Cheney uh, at Temple. And, and John, he always would go out and play the toughest non-conference schedule he could find who, who would be willing to play him. And there's a little bit of a like tenacity, like a fighter mm-hmm. spirit to it. Like, sure, we'll go play in Fog Allen Arena. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, we'll go play in the Cameron. Like whoever will play us, we'll we'll play you in the backyard. You know, and he brought that back to the Atlantic Ten and would basically run roughshod over the Atlantic Ten. And so that model had some appeal to me. I didn't really care about our overall record. I cared about our centennial record. So for me, we would always be playing these teams that, in my mind, were so much better than us. You know, um, the best teams in the best leagues. You know, and we were also playing some Division One teams. Like Coach O'Hanlon was. You know, we were really lucky to have over the years play Lafayette or Princeton, Cornell and Stevie, obviously Prouder Sinus uh, alum, shout out to Coach Donahue. But um, Steve played us when we were at Cornell, uh, when he was rather at Cornell. Uh, we've played Colgate because obviously Maddie, another mm-hmm. local Coach Langle. Um, so we've been really fortunate at Bucknell with Pat Flannery um, to play a lot of these academic Ivy and Patriot League schools and then in Division Three to try to test ourselves against what others would view as the top 10, 20 programs. That year in Florida, we played Middlebury, who at the time was, I don't remember rank, but rank, they were ranked in the top 10. They were really, really good. And we came home to play a team that we'd played for a long time. Um, <clears throat> Stan O'Grodnick was the head coach at Trinity up in Hartford for, for, for forever. Uh, if I'm fortunate enough to be at our science, as long as he was at Trinity, then I'll be a really happy man. Uh, and... Stan had agreed to play us when I'd first gotten there, and they always blitzed us, and even our best teams. Mm-hmm. And they were really good. They were what is now kind of Williams and Amherst and Middlebury, but they were they were the benchmark in the NESCAC. And so um, that team played Middlebury down in Florida in a great tournament in Daytona Beach, and I can remember because we played uh, RPI, who was also a really good team prior, and the entire team – so that, on that team was a point guard by the name of Kevin McGarvey, whose older brother Mike was an All-American for us and is a head coach at Lycoming, actually one of Matt Langle's assistants for years and one of my assistants for years, and so was Kevin. But Kevin was a player. He's a sophomore for us, and his family are really close friends with the Ryan family, Matt Ryan, quarterback Okay, Falcons. And I remember meeting, in fact, <clears throat> Mike Ryan and Mott, his son come to our golf outing every year uh, still today because I would sit next to Mike Ryan when I was recruiting Michael because Michael's classmates with Matt. Okay. Matt played a pen charter, but he's obviously a football star, but he also was a really good basketball player. Um, I don't know that anyone's listening right now, but Michael, he was better than you. And he, went, <laughs> he, he, and he didn't play in college. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, so, for, so, so the team went and watched BC at a bowl game because um, – through Kevin's father, Frank, we managed to get enough tickets to cover the team 
getting up to watch. And we were in Orlando. Like we were basically, uh, uh, you know, an hour from Orlando. The team goes to this bowl game, has a great time. And I say, nope. I'm going to stick around because I want to be prepared for Middlebury tomorrow because we had a day off. Mm -hmm. So all my assistants even went because they wanted to go watch the bowl game and watch Matt Ryan and sit with Matt Ryan's family (laughs) and his coolest thing going. And I was really, really bumming because while I'm watching Middlebury just absolutely blitz somebody, I'm like, why am I not at that football game? Because we're going to get rolled tomorrow, you know, (laughs) I'm busy scouting here, live scouting in a game that's like, we're going to lose by 25. But the next day we beat them. And it's not really close. The score wasn't so, so it wasn't necessarily indicative of the way that game went. Right. Because by midway through the second half, we've got that game in hand. And I'm like, huh. And we came home and after having a day off for New Year's, we practice twice and play Trinity. And they have an All-American forward who kicked our fannies the year before. And uh, and we beat them. And they were two of the top three teams in the NESCAC that year. And I thought, geez, we're, we're pretty good. <laughs> you know, like we're, we're a little better. Uh, we had lost to um, Immaculata, coached by Jamie Chadwin, who's a great coach. He's now at Radnor. We're recruiting one of his kids. Um, and when we lost to Immaculata, I wasn't, that was just, before, you know, after our finals week and before Christmas. And we, we, in my years, we probably have a winning percentage of like 25% uh, playing in that awful week in between right. uh, our finals. At places like Ursinus, Haverford, Swarthmore, Hopkins, I mean, finals is just grueling. So coming off of that, our kids are just shattered and we don't play well that following week. But for whatever reason, I had scheduled that game. It's really hard to schedule non-conference stuff. So we'd scheduled Immaculata and he played like, 50,000 defenses against us. Um, Jamie's a really good coach, and it affected us. And so prior to that trip to Florida, I wasn't really sure what we had. It was our second loss, and we'd lost to Williams on tip-off weekend, who was the other great NESCAC team. Right. And it was a wire game. We'd played well, but they beat us. So, And then we lost to Immaculata. Well, as it turned out, Immaculata was also a tournament team, won their league, won 20 games. So it was a quality loss at some level, right. right? But we didn't know that at the time. All we knew is we'd lost to Immaculata and we're going to Florida and coming back and then beating two of the best teams. I began to think, well, we're going to be okay. And obviously we didn't lose until we got to the Final Four. So NCAA tournament, I've got the list here. It starts with Baptist Bible, Virginia Wesleyan, Gettysburg Coast Guard. If I remember correctly, you guys were in Collegeville up until the Final Four, right? You hosted the whole way? We were. Yeah. It's, it's a whole lot harder when you're on the road. Yeah. And I know that. So you open with Baptist Bible and you take care of business, but this is the game Nick gets hurt. Yeah. And it real. I remember because we had these long form conversations when I wrote my book years ago and the, the journey of this specifically the NCAA tournament, it was just fascinating how the way things lined up and you were able to overcome compensate in a way, almost hide that your best player wasn't 100%. But in the first game against Baptist Bible, what's going through your head? He went up for, if I remember correctly, he went up for a dunk and, and came back, came down weird, something like that? Yeah, so that was a, <clears throat> you know, we kind of blitzed him. Uh, it was a 116 game, so obviously there was a differential in terms of talent on the court, and it showed right away. And we had been winning big, and it was early in the second half, and Nick was 
I think it was his sixth dunk of the game in a Division three. You don't see, right? You know, the, Nick was a Division one player playing. We were, that team was good because Nick should have been playing in the Ivy League or Patriot League. Um, I find it's a whole lot easier to win basketball games, Matt. We win despite the coaching, at least the head coach at Ursinus. And so when you get good players, you win. And Nick was a really good player along with a lot of other really talented teammates. I mean, it was John Noonan actually who 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 had some games in that tournament run that carried our team because Nick was hurt. So, yep, it was in that game. He got hurt. Uh, kid kind of fouled him hard. And he just came down weird. It wasn't something that everyone knew right away because he kind of got himself up and hobbled. But – it became really clear to his coaches that something was up. As it turned out, you know, this is this is a little bit of a different time because I don't know that this would happen now, but we just he was like, I'm good because he's the toughest kid on the planet, you know? And we played the next day knowing he was playing on one wheel, but we assumed he'd rolled his ankle. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, he's playing on like all kinds of fractures in there that took, you know, like 12, 10, 12 months to heal. But we tape him up because it <clears throat> doesn't look like there's any break. And we play, uh, you know, we went from playing Baptist Bible, who uh, that wasn't a moment really f- for us to be challenged quite the same way the next day, but we're playing Virginia Wesleyan the next day. And now Virginia Wesleyan doesn't, isn't aware right. of how significantly injured. By the next morning at a shoot-around, we're, cl- we're very aware. Uh-oh, we get a problem because we've got a lot of talented kids here, but like Nick, is a uniquely talented returning All-American who's about to be a All-American again. He's a two-time player in the year in the conference. He's the all-time leading scorer in the conference history, and he's not moving very well. Um, and we were about to play Virginia Wesleyan, and Nova Wesleyan was returning national championship game the previous two years, um, and most of that lineup had returned, and they were they were good. And so that that set up lots of drama because that game was – not going our way for most of the game. Um, and I can remember making some adjustments at halftime and hoping they'd work. And we were not a zone team. We played a lot of man. Uh, we, you know, we tend to – back then, there wasn't a lot of switching in college basketball. We did. Um, I remember learning it from Danny Williams at, when he was at Holy Family, and we scrimmaged them, and they just, like, just kicked the heck out of us. And I, I talked to him afterwards. I'm like, so how do you teach that? <laughs> And we brought in some of his switching scheme. But now we did it a little bit differently because we would sometimes do it based on shot clock and personnel grouping. So we have a bunch of different ways of switching. But that team played all man with some switching. Uh, and you could argue that it's a close enough to zone at times that it wasn't as big a deal. But mm-hmm. our matchup zone was really different than the defense we've been playing. And we hadn't played much of it all year because we were good enough to just win on man. Right. And we didn't change defenses very often. But we made we couldn't keep these I mean there were there were division one athletes and one not one or two, like six or eight. Um and there was a putback dunk late in the first half of an O board where I swear the kids like torso was at the rim. Uh <laughs> and sure enough, uh we're you know we're down nineteen with seventeen minutes left in the second half. But the game began to to shift because of the things that we had changed at halftime. And it got worse for Nick because in this, <clears throat> early in the second half, he, he came down on a kid's ankle. It was just a freak injury. And some of it was because he was in zone. So right. re- rebounding is obviously decidedly different when you're in zone. And it's, it's harder, right? And it was for him because he was unaware of where there was another body near him. And he came down on a kid's foot and he rolled it. like had a really severe high ankle sprain. So he's got a really severe high ankle sprain in one ankle. 
and what is an undiagnosed compound fracture in the other. Uh, it was it was what Deuce Daly had, a Liz Frank mm-hmm. fracture, but it was kind of with another chip fracture. So what we do is now tape that other ankle up, and we're sitting in zone anyway. So And he's like, I'm good. This is just <laughs> tough as nails. And somehow the worm turns. And it, you know, it, it got harder and harder for that team because we had taken away, it was almost like kryptonite to them in a way that, I mean, it was bad coaching by me to not have tried it earlier. Um, but we, we got in front of them by the time there was like four or five minutes left. And we just kept having the psychology of like, it, we're not down 19. Let's get to down 10, right? The 10 minute mark. Let's get to be down two possessions by the time it's a five minute. And we just ran a little ahead because we had great players. And I, I can remember um, our point guard, Remy Cousard, doing a great job managing pace for us. And John Noonan was all everything in that game to kind of make some big threes for us, along with, you know, Maddie made some. But the, the guy who, uh, you know, Matt Hilton, but the guy who actually had the biggest impact on that second half was our seven foot center. And so I've often said, well, we don't get to the Final Four without Mike Shema, and everyone always likes to talk about Nick or John Noonan or the point guard or Matt Hilton's shooting. But for us, that halftime was a lot about, like, you know, really checking in in, in sometimes demonstrative ways with Michael and be like, look, we can't do – you're going to have to try to score. They're not going to double you, and they are just full pressure denial everywhere. We need you to meet the moment. And all of a sudden, this seven-footer is making like eight-foot jump hooks left and right. It looked like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, and they refused to double. And we just kept doing it. And then obviously they got in the scramble mode because he was just so good. And Shattuck made a key play here or there with six, seven minutes left. And I just, the, the wheels came off. Um, so that was that second, you know, the second game uh, of that run. And it was obviously amazing because... We'd never gotten that far in all my time, and we'd had some teams that would you could argue were even better, right? You know, on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of a sudden, we were winning tournament games, which was fun. And then you beat Gettysburg, and I think the fascinating thing about the Gettysburg game is that was the fourth time you had played them that year. You beat you beat them twice in the yep. regular season, yep. beat them in the conference tournament. They knew exactly what Nick Shattuck was, so they had to be fully prepared for you know Player of the Year All American. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, he talk, you talk about how he kind of turned into the facilitator given his situation uh, with the with the injuries, and it was something that Gettysburg wasn't ready for. I, I, honestly, in some ways, that game, like if I'm Coach Petrie, was a, another like mentor of mine, the longtime Gettysburg coach. He's a really good man. He retired recently. He's been out of the game for about a year now, and they'd lost five games that year. They were also a top 10 ranked team. Right. And it's the best team in college history. And their losses were to Cal Lutheran in a tournament on the West Coast over Christmas break, who's a tournament team. Cal Lutheran was also an NCAA tournament team that year and four times to resign us. So, I mean, it just must have been just absolutely frustrating um, for, for Coach Petrie. But I, I know that we were, we got, God smiled on us because the two regular season games, we just blitzed them. It was not a, they were, neither were competitive, but the, the Centennial Championship game, um, it's why Nick was such a special player because I can remember we beat Dickinson in a semifinal game. And I, this story was told to me years later by our point guard, Remy Kusari. He's like, you know why Nick was so great? Because we were all yucking it up. My team has lived on a, one of the houses on campus. And so they lived together. 
and there's a big living room, you know, and I can imagine after they beat Dickinson, they're all hanging out there and they're yucking it up. And, and Nick, whose room was upstairs, hears this, you know, and he goes down and is like, shut the bleep up, go to bed. We haven't done shit. And he didn't care that that game, he had set the all-time mark. I think he had 46 against Dickinson. And he like it didn't occur to Nick to care at all that he'd scored 46 and we won a playoff game. All that mattered was we were playing Gettysburg for the third time the next day. And he wanted to win a championship. That's what I meant. That, that's what made him so special right. was like it wasn't at all. And, and kids, those are hard kids to find because everybody has an ego, including you and me, mm-hmm. right? And his ego always was superseded by winning. It didn't, nothing mattered except winning. And so when you get kids like that, obviously you get special teams. And we played Gettysburg that third game, and it was actually really close for this champ when we won a centennial championship. Mm-hmm. So, of course, when we play them two weeks later in a Sweet 16 game, I'm a bit more nervous about, well, they've kind of figured out some of the things we're doing here. And they had some really talented kids. Corey Dorsey, a wing scorer, Dan Capping from Laura Murray. Like they, they, they were really good. And a freshman, Andrew Powers, went on to be a two-time All-American himself. So they, that team was loaded with talent. And I began to get a little bit antsy about given the way the championship game went. But sure enough, the fact that we had to adjust and somewhat significantly the things we did in practice to mask, because of course Nick's not practicing. Right. And we changed up some things. And we essentially made him a point guard and we had a really talented point guard in Remy Kusar, but we asked him to do a little bit different things. And it seemed to kind of really throw Gettysburg. No, this is also, you got to remember, this is long before social media. Right. And like, I don't know that their staff even knew that he was hurt. They got the film from the, you know, back then it was shared DVDs. So they, they got the two games from the previous weekend. They saw him get, go down hard against Baptist Bible, but, they saw him play the next day, mm-hmm. but we're in zone. Right. They see him roll his ankle, but he finished the game. They don't know that literally, like, he can't walk. Right. So he's not even on crutches. He's in two boots, and he's not walking. He's immobile all week. <laughs> and uh, I think that, that, that ultimately we were the beneficiary of at least the fact that we had to make some adjustments. Uh, now, none of that accounts for what happened the following day in our overtime win over Coast Guard was a really, really good team. But I would say that outside of Virginia Wesleyan, we were really fortunate. When you get to the second weekend, it's a lot about matchups. And to a certain degree, over the years, some of our really good championship teams have lost because of bad matchups. To face Gettysburg, there was an upside to that Mm -hmm. because they're a centennial team. And we're built to win our league or the NESCAC or the UAA. We're not the style of like the ODAC or the NJAC. And so like for us, it was not a bad thing to play a centennial team in a Sweet 16. Uh, and it wasn't a bad thing to play Coast Guard who looked more like a centennial team. They were really, really good. But well, from a matchup standpoint, it was a fair fight. What is that feeling like when you beat Coast Guard and you are taking this team to the Final Four? Uh, you know, I... I'm going to sound like a jerk, but I, honestly, I was just so happy for the the kids that, that played. I, I I really tried not to to lose the plot when it comes to stuff. I obviously was so happy, but 
my reaction was more like I jumped into the arms of Brian McEvely, one of my assistant coaches who'd been a player at Ursinus, an all-league player, Will Fury, who was on my staff at that point, and excited for them that they could be this part of the moment. And then watching our players celebrate, I don't know, I was just really, really happy for, for our kids. And that, you know, those kids had worked really, really hard. There were guys who committed, like, the level of commitment. If you want to be a team that can go, like, Swarthmore just went all the way to the NCAA Finals, it, those don't happen because you just have talent. Uh, some of that's Landry because he's a really talented coach. Um, but some of it's also the, the, those kids work really hard. Right. That, the, 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 the second weekend is a lot more about what you did in June through September. And I had a team that had met that moment in a way that I, I was so happy for them that they, because you don't always get the benefits at the end of that. Sometimes you don't right. win, like the vagaries of sport, right? Mm-hmm. But the team had worked really hard. And I, so I was just so, I was overcome with joy just that, that they, they got to see the reward for what hard work can do, right? Um, and I knew that that team, you know, like I told you earlier, like every team's different. And so I knew for that, that like, it was a, it was a pretty remarkable, dramatic journey I was happy because I, did, I wanted to keep playing. There's, you know, you, you're, when you know those, the longer you coach, you know that the end, when you're a kid and you're a freshman, you're like, well, I got everything in front of me. Only your seniors recognize what those last couple games mean. As a coach, you do. You know, so winning against Coast Guard meant this group gets to practice on Monday. And there was something that was amazing about that because I knew how much they loved being together and playing because even when you have a whole rotation return and you graduate some seniors that might not have a bigger footprint, every team is different and unique. And inevitably losing seniors that, are, that know what everything is, the league, our style as a staff, the department, the school community, what it takes to succeed academically versus bringing in incoming freshmen. Every season is its own chapter. And I knew for that team it was special that they get to keep playing. And so I was just happy for them. Final question. What is your favorite part of being a coach? And I mean, obviously everybody likes to win and win, but when you boil it down, what is your favorite part? So I'm, a, I'm afforded the opportunity to impact lives differently than lots of my friends who have real jobs. They probably make more money. <laughs> In fact, I know they make a lot more money, but they don't, they, don't, they don't have the connection that I get to show up every day and teach a sport. I mean, for starters, I love basketball. So I get to be around this amazing game. It's not an individual sport. It's a team sport. You know, I've heard our football coach talk about football as the ultimate team sport. I would argue that that's not the case because if I've got a roster of 13, 14 kids, every one of them is intimately involved in the outcome of a game. In a way that, you know, you got a hundred football players, mm-hmm. you know, 35 to 40 of them are playing, you know. So ours is a team sport in every area. And I get to teach that and I love it. I also happen to feel like I, I get to, to ultimately point kids in a direction when they might not be making the right, you know, right decision and say, you know what? No, let's, let's think about doing it maybe this way. And for me, that matters that I have kind of the capacity to still be an educator I mean, then lastly, like, you know, I'm at Ursinus, which is this extraordinary community. And I, I get to work for these three really talented educators themselves. And Laura Mulligan, Aaron Strobel, and Marcus Hunter. And then Laura, my, my actual boss, the AD, 
She's a former coach. She won national championship in field hockey. She's a kick-ass field hockey player, went to the Olympics and all-time Hall of Famer at, you know, Old Dominion. And, like, she knows what it's like to actually be in the weeds with a family who's upset about their kid not playing or joyous over a huge win. And so for me, I, I love the fact that I get to work for these really talented mentors and friends. I love the fact that I get to impact kids' lives. And I get to scratch the competitive itch. I'm not sure that I'd be allowed to be as competitive as I am if I had jobs X, Y, or Z. I get to be super competitive, hold kids to super high expectations um, while having these intense connections with them. And, like, for me, the idea that, you know, uh, Jesse Krasna invited me and Kirsten to his wedding a month ago, and we got to see another kid off in his journey in that moment – that still happens. John Ward, I just got up, save the date to another former forward that you interviewed. Uh, John Ward, who's, a, you know, went, went and got a PhD at Penn in physics. Like having to, the connection that spans so many years later while still knowing guys that played at Ursinus in the 60s and 70s and being aware that there's going to be a me later. Like I love that. I love the fact that it's Ursinus basketball. And that, that that we're gonna long before me and long after me, and that my place I get to have a little bit of everything. I get the kids that I have yet to coach. I've got all these kids that that I coached and that I'm still really close with, and I have the current team. And each chapter along that journey, because next year's team will be different than this year's team, as we send four kids off to graduation, uh, you know, two weeks ago. So I guess that's what I love best. I love best the fact that I get to work with kids. Ursinus head coach. Kevin Small, thanks for stopping by. Matt, thanks so much for having me. And that will do it for episode 12. One on One is a sports podcast from KYW News Radio. If you like this show and want to help us out, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. You can help more people find out about the podcast by finding the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks again to Kevin Small for coming in. Kevin's the head men's basketball coach at Division Three or sinus college you can follow him on twitter at coach kevin small my name is matt leon come back next week for another good conversation with someone you should know more about